I was thinking once again as, as we were singing, Kept by His Love. Thank you, brother. Just again, the simple truth that uh, Scripture says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, God initiated. He had not initiated. We love because He first loved us. Jude says that He alone is able to keep you from stumbling. He sustains us. Philippians said that he who began the good work will continue it to completion in Christ Jesus. He completes us. So from beginning to end, it's all of grace. Amen? God is faithful. Michael asked me uh, some months ago as he was preparing a theme for these days if I would be willing to share a message on the subject of how Satan can counterfeit uh, You've probably heard this simple truth, and in many third world countries, Satan is the roaring lion. I believe here in America, predominantly, he's the angel of lights, and uh, he comes in to deceive and and to uh, give us the impression that things are of God that are not of God. And uh, I remember years ago hearing a quote, it was attributed to Manly Beasley, I'm going to assume it's his, but he said that if Satan wants to get a man of God... He will typically get him in one of three areas, in money, morals, or a tangent. And let me tell you something, a tangent can be just as devastating as money or morals. Because when first things are no longer first, we always get off track. Now here's the problem, for those of us who, who love and long for the Lord Jesus Christ to come in revival, Proverbs says that for him who is hungry, even what is bitter tastes sweet. And uh, what happens is when you long to see God move, uh, sometimes you, you want to hope that things that are happening are of God. You want to believe they are because you just long for God to move in revival. You know, I, I hesitate, I kind of debated about sharing this story with you, but when I was a, a young Christian, I mean, literally just months into the faith, uh, I, I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, grew up there, and I, I was watching the television of a, a local preacher and uh, just claiming miracles and just incredible things. And, and, I, and one night they'd had big services, and he, he told a story about how fire trucks showed up there because somebody had called that the building was on fire, and they got there, and it was the holy fire of God. The building wasn't on fire. And, and you know... <laughs> As a Christian, we all, if you want more of God, if you're driven for more, I, I just said, Lord, if, if this is of you, I want to be a part of it. I mean, I, I don't want to cheat or, or deny anything that's part of you. And, and so I, I drove to the other side of Dallas to, to this church and uh, attended the church that night. And uh, I mean, it was, it was a ride. <laughs> it, it was, there was a lot of wildness going on and fainting and different things. And I remember at one point, and, and I, I mean, this wasn't their fault, but there were two people up singing, and, and uh, all the ushers were yearing, wearing yellow blazers. And a man came walking on the side stage. He was year, wearing a yellow cardigan sweater, and so he kind of blended in. He just looked like one of the, the, the ushers. He walked up in the middle of the song and snatched the microphone away from one of them and said, I am Jesus. And uh, they descended on him quickly. <laughs> and drug him out the side door. 
And, uh, but what really, really struck me in, in the midst of all this, and I'm trying to process it, and God, is this you? Is this you? Are you part of this? Because if it is, I, I want whatever you want for my life. And, and at, at the height of what was happening, and the, the altar was full and backed up into the rolls, and people were just, I mean, it was loud, and all these things were going on. And all of a sudden, the lights came up, and a voice came over the speaker and said, thank you and good evening. And it all stopped. And everybody got up and started leaving. Now, even as a young Christian, you know, the spirit blows where it will. And there was something in me that said, this isn't right. I mean, if this is a, I mean, if God does what God does, you know, men don't schedule God. And, uh, I must have had a, a quizzical look on my face because a, a gentleman walked up to me. He said, can I help you? And I said, I said, no, not really. I said, I'm just a little confused. Now, I use the term confused. To be honest, I was just trying to, to discern, okay, God, how can this be uh, line up with your word that the Spirit does what he does? And, and um, the man said to me, well, did you know that confusion's from Satan? And I said, well... Okay, I, I can believe that. And he said, can I pray for you? I said, well, sure. So he started praying for me. And in the middle of the prayer, you know, you can sense people around you. A crowd had gathered around me, and they weren't touching me, but they all had their hands like this. In the middle of his prayer, and again, I debated whether to share this, but I feel like it's necessary. The man put his hand on my forehead and began commanding the demon of confusion to come out of me. And, and I'm just being honest with you. I broke out violently coughing. And he said, that's it. It's out. It's out. It's out. And then they all walked away and left me there. And let me just tell you, it worked because I wasn't confused anymore. <laughs> I looked around and I said, God, this is not it. This, there's, there's something not right here. Now, one of the things I look back on on that event is there was a physical manifestation. In fact, I want you to be honest. I want to be honest about something. I have since repented of that. I have asked God to protect me because there was a physical manifestation that I believed Satan counterfeited to try to get me off on a tangent, to try to get me a direction that was not focused on God, that would have been focused more on other things that aren't as essential. Now, again, I want you to know, as, as I share this session, I am not standing up here as judge and jury on every movement or every denomination or every preacher or those kinds of things. I don't, all I can do is tell you what Scripture says, okay? You see, part of the problem also is that there's an odd balance you run. And, and I've really kind of come full circle on this. Uh, for years, I kind of felt like, well, when God begins to move, it's like the ark. You don't touch it. You just, you back off. You don't want to be Uzzah. You don't want to try to, you know, help God out. And uh, several years ago, when I, I went to Brownwood, Texas, when God had moved in a work of revival there on the campus uh, of the college there, Howard Payne, and in uh, John Avant's church, and I met with a number of young men and women, and I, it, it was just, you know, it was a God thing. I went to a college Bible study, and the leader didn't show up. And everybody kept turning and looking at me because I was the oldest person in the room. 
And so I finally just walked in the middle of them and I said, hey, tell me what God's doing. And they just began to gush. I mean, just, you know, I, I met with God here and in during this, and God brought me to repentance. I mean, it was, it was a, just a powerful work of these young people describing, but I began to notice something. How often they said things that were just biblically wrong. And in fact, I went to, to dinner uh, one after that, that session with two brothers who had met with God, and they were just still just talking about how God had met with them, and they had come to repentance, and there was a, just a passion in their hearts. And, and, but one of the young men looked at me, and he said, I have to be honest, he said, before God showed up that morning, I hadn't picked up my Bible in almost six months. And, and I, I very quickly realized something, that uh, revival does not equal instant maturity, that uh, there, was, there was growth that still needed to happen there. In fact, when I left, I told Amy, I, just, I wish I could just live there for the next six months and, and take some of these young men under, the ring, under my wing. And, and so there, there's, there's a balance there. You don't want to oppose God. In fact, you know, during the 1857 prayer revival, uh, the Third Great Awakening, we know it in America as the prayer revival through Jeremiah Lampfear and then touched other areas of the world. The pastor on the screen last night talked about that revival touching England. And, and among those praying for that revival was the great man of God, Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray was pastoring in South Africa. And he had been pleading with God. He's, he's, if you don't know who Andrew Murray is, he wrote just some of the classics of deeper life in, uh, with Christ in the school of prayer. And uh, just tremendous books. And, and he was praying for God to send revival. Well, one night during a service, uh, the adults were in one section of the church. The young people were in a different section of the church. God moved in. And interestingly, God moved in to the young people and just swept through. Now, it, it, he, was, he was a Dutch pastor. It was a very reserved church, very uh, formal in ways. But when God moved in, in fact, they said that there was literally the sound of a train coming. And then the Spirit of God just was poured out among those young people. And they just began simultaneously all praying at once out loud. And uh, one of the elders of the church went and got Andrew Murray and said, something's going on with the youth. And, and I, you know, we don't know what it is. So Andrew Murray went over there and he walked in and it was just this cacophony of prayer going on. And uh, he felt very uncomfortable with that. It was out of the box for what he was used to. And so Andrew Murray actually went and began to try to, to settle down the young people. And they just, they couldn't, they just kept praying. And, and Andrew Murray pur pulled aside the, the gentleman that was in charge of the, the young people and, and kind of rebuked him and said, you know, you're responsible for this. And, and as they were talking, a missionary walked up to Andrew Murray who had been stateside for a couple of years and then come back to South Africa. And he said, Pastor, he said, what is happening in there is what has been happening in America in revival. And he said, you're opposing God. And Andrew Murray just immediately was pierced to the heart and, and just said, oh, God, forgive me. Because it doesn't look like I think it will. I, I don't want to oppose anything you're doing. Now, just a side note on that. When Andrew Murray was an old man and he had been head of their denomination numerous times, had written numerous books and, and discipled young men and taught. Some of the younger pastors would meet with them and kind of to tease them, they would say, Dr. Murray, tell us about the time you tried to stop God's revival. <laughs> <laughs> so again, you, you don't want to stand in opposition, but you also want to be discerning. 
Several years ago, a movement was going on that we as a ministry, again, we were thrilled, oh God, could this be it? Could this be the spark of revival? But there were some things we were very uneasy about. And uh, so we, we met as a leadership and said, Lord, you know, to each other, and Lord, what do you want us to do here? Do we address it? Do we address some specific things we're concerned about? And we made a decision as a ministry, simply rather than addressing the specific uh, group or event, that we just put out one of our issues of our magazine on revival and just what biblically Scripture says about revival. And then secondly, historically, what is the core of revival? Not the, the outlines of thing, different things that happen, but what is the core of revival? You know, what's interesting, we didn't say anything about the situation, didn't say anything about the group. All we did was publish this issue that dealt with the issue from Scripture of revival. Within days, one of the leaders of that group called us and pled with us not to say anything else about them. <laughs> you ever heard the, the saying, you thought throw a rock into a pack of dogs, and the one that yelps is the one that got hit? Well, I think somebody got hit. And so what I want to do is just walk, turn to Isaiah chapter 11, if you haven't already, and just walk through what Scripture says about the work of the Spirit. Now, you probably heard, and I heard years ago, just that simple illustration that uh, when you spot counterfeit money, what they do is they study the real. You don't study counterfeit, you study the real, so you know uh, how to recognize counterfeit. My uh, brother-in-law, is a tra- he trains in computer forensics and uh, for the Secret Service. And so I just shot him an email, and I said, hey, could you ask one of your buddies uh, just to elaborate, is that true, and then just maybe elaborate a little bit on it. And so I got a message forwarded to me from a Secret Service agent, and he kind of laid out, he had some, some links you could go to to talk where they talk about that, and he laid out a little more how they spot counterfeit money. And I think what was interesting to me was it, it wasn't, the idea wasn't clinical. It wasn't so much that they look at a bill and they have a magnifying glass and they're going like this. It was much more intuitive. You see, the reality is in your lifetime, you're handling money constantly. It's running through your hands. You're looking at it. And so the way you spot it is it just doesn't feel right. This doesn't look right. There's something wrong here. And really, that's what happens when you walk in the Spirit in your life for years. You can sense in your spirit, you know, something's not right here. And and so, Isaiah, this is a glorious passage where it's talking about the Messiah to come and and the Spirit who will rest upon Jesus. And so, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And what I want to do is just simply walk through each of those and talk about what it means, what the real is, and and then in light of that, what the counterfeit is. First of all, a spirit, the Holy Spirit of wisdom, wisdom. When the Spirit comes, there will be wisdom. Now, remember a very simple truth. Wisdom does not come with age. Now, that goes against, you know, a lot of what we say. Wisdom doesn't come with age. Let me ask you a question. How many of you know an old fool? (laughs) Right? You know what the psalmist said, Psalm 119, 100? He said this. He said, I have more wisdom than the elders those with age, 
I have more wisdom than my teachers, those with education, because of your word. Wisdom does not come from age. Wisdom comes from the word of God. Now, when you take years, long years lived in light of the word of God and obedience to it, you have great wisdom. But just growing old doesn't mean you're growing wise. So, in other words, any movement of God will have at its core an exaltation and a foundation of the Word of God. That will be the authority. Any movement of God that does not focus on the Word, that focuses, and by the way, the way Satan counterfeits is he will focus on experience above the Word. Well, this happened, or this has to be of God because these things are going on. You know, and by the way, those kinds of things in the history of revival, they happen frequently. It happened under Jonathan Edwards, and Jonathan Edwards wrote an entire treatise on the issue, and he basically said, look, those kind of manifestations don't prove or disprove revival. I remember Mary Peckham sharing, she was in the revival in the Hebrides, that there was a young lady who in the midst of, was under such intense conviction of sin that she basically kind of went into a trance and that they, they just kind of removed her from the service and sat her in a separate room, but they just simply chalked that up to personality type. In their minds, that wasn't a proof of God moving, that was just God working in the life of a person. And so the Word will be central. Now, I, over the years, have had people tell me, and I know Michael and Daniel have probably gone through this too, I've had people tell me God has told them all kinds of things. I mean, I, I've had men look at God has told me to leave my wife. I mean, I've, I have had them tell me all kinds of things. I, I remember a lady came to my wife and, and said, uh, God told me my husband is going to die and he's already told me who I'm going to marry. And uh, so Amy sat down with this woman and began to ask her questions. And, and Amy went straight to the core issue there. She said, tell me, how's your marriage? She said, well, you know, my husband just does a lot of things that bother me. And uh, Amy said, well, like what? And she said, well, you know, just the way he breathes. <laughs> And I told Amy later, I said, you know, if I were him, I'd be sleeping with one eye open. Because, <laughs> yeah, by the way, that, that's murder. Do you realize that? Murder is not simply killing somebody. Murder can be wishing someone out of existence. That's what she was doing. She was murdering her husband. And, and so it'll always be true to the Word, and the Word will be central to it. All things are tested through the grid of God's Word. You know, I'll tell you an interesting story. During the Welsh Revival, and, and Evan Roberts looked back on this many years ago, and let me stop and say this. Just recently, I heard someone talking about Evan Roberts, and they said, you know, he was a simple, ignorant coal miner. And let me say something. Simple, yes, maybe in the sense that he was very unpretentious, but do not get the idea because he was a coal miner, 25 years old, that Evan Roberts on any level was ignorant. He was a student of the Word. He read the theological works of his day. The only reason he had not, until right before revival broke out, attended Bible school was because he feared that piling up the knowledge would kill, kill his zeal for God. He was a man of the Word, and he was a studier of the Word. But Evan Roberts shared that one night before, in the midst of the revival, before he was going out to preach, 
that it just, he was meeting with God. He said it was an incredible sense of, of sweetness and nearness. And, and he said just, it was incredible. He felt a freedom and, a, and, and a, just, just a sweet presence. And he said he went out and he preached that night with great freedom and seemingly great response. He said the next night as he went to prayer, he said it was the exact opposite. He said there was just this oppression and it was a battle and he couldn't find freedom in his thoughts. And, and, and he felt like he, just almost a darkness in the room is the way he described it. And he said he went out and he felt like he labored in his preaching and, and there was still response, but it just wasn't what he felt like it had been the night before. Now listen, years later, as he had given his life solely to prayer, he looked back on those two events and this is what he said. He believed that both of them were from Satan because he believed that Satan was trying to get him off of the foundation of the word and on to the foundation of his impressions and feelings. So the Spirit will always exalt the Word. And by the way, as we go through this, don't just think in the big picture of revival. This really describes what a Spirit-filled life will be. There'll be a deep love for God's Word, and it'll be central. The second is understanding. It's a spirit of understanding or discernment. God gives discernment. One of the things that happens in revival is things, gray areas tend to fade away and issues become black and white. It's just really fascinating if you read the history of revival. And in fact, Evan Roberts urged the people and the four steps he urged them, one of them was you need to drop any questionable habit. And what God will do, there's a spirit of discernment. People begin to see things for what they are. They begin to see sin for what it is. And things are no longer gray. Things become black and white. Sin is called sin. Any movement of the Spirit of God will deal with sin. You know, I, I'm just fascinated in the years I've traveled. I tell people this, how often churches will try to cover sin to protect God's reputation. As though, number one, God is insecure about who he is. But secondly, what is amazing to me is, while people are trying to cover sin, God is continually exposing it. God has no insecurity about who he is. And even when it brings a reproach uh, among the community, God will expose sin. So there's a spirit of discernment. I, I remember being in a meeting in another state, and I was walking uh, on a Sunday morning after service, I was walking through the foyer, and I looked over to the side, and there was a man and woman over in a corner talking. And uh, I just kind of glanced over, and, and I still to this day, I can, it was almost like a movie shot to me. The woman, as she was talking, turned and looked like this, and then turned back. And I, and I just kind of halfway noticed this, and as I kept walking, this thought came to my mind, she is an adulteress. And I don't know if you've ever been shocked by a thought, <laughs> but I thought, I remember thinking, Lord, wow, I mean, that's a pretty harsh assessment for someone you've never talked to. And, and as I was walking, I just said, Lord, why, why is that thought there? Why did I think that? And, and you know what happened? God brought to mind the book of Proverbs where it describes the strange, the adulterous woman, and it describes her, her attitudes. It describes her physical actions and postures, and she's lurking, and, she's, and, and this woman's physical posture fit the description in, in, in Proverbs. About two days later, that woman's husband showed up at the church 
looking for counsel. And he broke down and wept and said, my wife's had multiple affairs in the last six months. That was her. And one of the things the Spirit will do is he will point out sin. You know, in, in that same meeting, it was an amazing thing. God began to move. One of our young ladies went into a local grocery store one morning, and, and this is a, a, a little town. You know, the fascinating thing, it was called Mountain Lake, which was interesting because there was no mountain and no lake. <laughs> and uh, false advertising. But one of our team members walked into a grocery store. The grocery store manager just descended on her, grabbed her by the arm. He said, what is going on at the church? She said, I'm sorry, I don't understand. He said, what is happening at the church? He said, I've had three people come in here this morning, ask my forgiveness for shoplifting in the past, pay me restitution. He said, what is going on over there? Listen, you think that made an impact on him? You know what happened? In a town of 2,000, by the end of the first week, we had over 800 people a night coming out because word was getting around town that Christians were getting right. And any movement that will indulge or gloss over the issue of sin is not a movement of the Holy Spirit or is not walking or being guided by the Spirit because God will always expose sin. Spirit of understanding. Thirdly, the spirit of counsel. The spirit of counsel. Now, it's interesting as I began to look into this word. Uh, let, let me just say, do not get into your mind our English definition for the word counsel. Because remember something, we tend to look at that as, well, I need counsel. I just need some advice. Remember, God does not give advice. God gives command. <laughs> And so what happens is the Spirit will come and give direction in the midst of revival. Now, it, it, the word literally means a plan or a direction. That, that, that's the idea behind that word. And one of the things I've found in revival is that, there, yes, there's an inward work, and that's where it starts in our lives, but God will always give outward directions. He'll point you. To, to reconciliation. He'll point you to go to a person and make an issue right to clear your conscience over something you've done wrong. You see, it's not an inward movement. It is an outward. God always directs outward. And that's one of the exciting things in revival is some of the directions God gives. It's just amazing to see what he does. You know, probably maybe my favorite story from revival, during the Hebrides revival, Duncan Campbell uh, said there was an older lady in one of the villages who was a deep woman of God. She would periodically send for Duncan Campbell and say, Mr. Campbell, I want you to, to do this. She would give him direction. And he said sometimes he didn't even know why. He just trusted her walk with God and her deep prayer. One morning she sent for him. She said, Mr. Campbell, I want you to go across the island to uh, this particular village. Duncan Campbell said he'd never been there. He didn't know anybody there, but he was riding a motorcycle. This was around 1949. And he began to ride a motorcycle across the island. He said as he was riding along, he looked off to the side, and he saw a young girl sitting on the road, and he could tell she was crying. And he pulled over to the side, and he got out, and he went back to her, and he knelt down in front of her. And he said, can I help you? And in her Scottish brogue, she said, ah, you cannot help me. Only God can help me. Duncan Campbell said he thought to himself, here's a young lady, the Lord's dealing with her, I'll lead her to Christ. He said, I think I can help you. And she said, ah, you cannot help me, only God can help me. Duncan Campbell said, what's wrong? She said, way over the mountain there somewhere, 
lives a man named Duncan Campbell. She had no idea she was talking to him. And she said, God has told me that he's to come and to preach in my village because my brother and my uncle are lost. Duncan Campbell looked at her. He said, how do you know this? 17-year-old girl. She said, because I spent the whole night in prayer. He said, you spent the whole night in prayer? She said, ah, and the night before that. He said, you spent two whole nights in prayer? She said, you don't understand. She said, my brother and my uncle are lost. They're going to die and go to hell. And God has told me that Duncan Campbell will preach in my village and that they'll be saved. Duncan Campbell said he took her by the shoulders and shook her. He said, look at me. And she looked up into his eyes. He said, I'm Duncan Campbell. And he said, I'm not ashamed to say she threw her arms around my neck and began to sob over and over again. You're a covenant-keeping God. You're a covenant-keeping God. And that night, Duncan Campbell preached in her village, and the first two people down the aisle were her brother and her uncle. You see, God sends us. He gives direction. He gives counsel to send us out. I remember Gerhard de Toy telling me this story when he was in South Africa before he came over to the States. Gerhard works for the faith mission in Canada now. He, he said that a, a group of Afrikaner pastors, deep men of God, asked, uh, went to him. They were older men. He was a young man. And, and they said, well, you go up on the mountain with us, and we're going to take you up there. We're going to teach you to pray. And he said, I was a young white man with these pastors, and they took me up on the mountain, and they spent literally days there fasting and praying. And he said, that's where I began to understand the depths of prayer. And he said, in the midst of that prayer meeting, one of the men came to him, one of the pastors, and said, you need to go to this particular village, and you need to preach there. And so again, Gerhard said he'd never been there in his life, but he went, and he traveled on foot. He came to this town. He said as he was walking into town, he just happened upon a lady who was out cleaning around her house, and he began to talk to her, and she was a believer. She said, there's, you know, there's no church here. She said, but I'm a Christian. And she said, would you stay in my house? And Gerhard said, I'd love to, you know. And so she put him up, and he went into town. He set up a place where they could have meetings. He went door to door. He invited people to come out for this service. And uh, this woman's husband was lost. And, and Gerhard had talked to him and invited him to come out. Well, that night, as the time came for the service to start, no one was there. And he waited another 10, another 15 minutes. Nobody showed up. And Gerhard said, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do here? And God said, why'd you come here? He said, to preach. And he said, then do it. <laughs> Gerhard said, so I held an entire service. He said, I led worship, sang. He said, I even passed the offering plate. <laughs> and I stood up and I preached to nobody. At the end of the service, he, he got home late that night, and this lady's husband was waiting up. He said, how'd it go tonight? And Gerhard said, oh, it was, it was wonderful. He said, well, how many people showed up? And he said, oh, well, nobody showed up. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, well, nobody came. He said, well, how is it wonderful? He said, oh, listen, God was there. The man just thought he was crazy. About 2.30 in the morning, this man woke his wife up and said, that guy is crazy. He said, I can't sleep. That guy did an entire service with nobody there. Who does that? He said, that guy must be crazy. But he said, God was there. You know what the short of it was? That man prayed to receive Christ. Gerhard left the next morning. There is now the largest evangelical church in that region, in that town, because that lady's husband came to Christ. Preaching to nobody. 
You see, God gives direction. He gives counsel. Number four, and this is the one we love, the spirit of strength, of power. God comes in power. Now, you know, there's so many stories in the history of revival, and, and, and sometimes there are incredible manifestations. I remember Helen Roosevelt describing, uh, as she was a missionary to the Belgian Congo, a doctor, and, and uh, they had been praying for just many, many, many months for God to send revival. And she said one night during one of their services, she said she began to hear the wind powerfully blowing, and, and a monsoon was coming through. And so she said she got up, and she went over to the windows of the little building there, was going to close the shutters. And she said she looked out, and she said she could notice that the trees were motionless. And yet she could hear this incredible sound of a powerful wind. And then she described just how the presence of God swept through that place. So there, there are those kind of manifestations that happen. Duncan Campbell shared about a story where a group of young people, as the revival was just breaking out, were meeting for a dance and they were drinking liquor and said one of the young men held up a bottle. There were about 60 young people there. And he held up a bottle of whiskey and he said, jokingly, mockingly, guys, we better drink all we can because if this revival keeps going, we're probably not going to drink anymore. And they all laughed and he said within a few minutes, suddenly that bottle dropped to the floor and that young man was on his knees weeping. So the Spirit of God swept through that room, and those young people began to fall to their knees and weep and repent before God. You know, sometimes that outward manifestation happens, but let me tell you something. The greatest powerful work of God is always a changed life. Because Satan can counterfeit any outward sign. But what he cannot counterfeit is the working of the Holy Spirit in a changed life and in the fruit of the Spirit. And so that's the glorious thing about revival. When a work is of God's Spirit, you will have changed lives. I mean, radically changed lives. <clears throat> we not long ago did a meeting I did here in South Georgia. And I remember the first day I was walking along with one of the staff members. An older lady was walking, uh, passing us. And the staff member called her name, Miss So-and-so, and said, how you doing this morning? And she just kind of grunted and didn't even look at him, just kept walking. And uh, he just turned to me and he said, you know, that woman hates my guts. <laughs> she, he said, I have no idea why. She, he said, he doesn't just hate me, he hates the pastor too, but she just hates us. That during the days of that, those meetings, God broke into that woman's heart. She came up to give a testimony, and this is what she said. She said, when I was a child, I was molested by a family member. She said, my heart grew hard and angry that God would let that happen. And she said, then my heart grew angry at men. She said, I have no idea how, she was in her 70s. She said, I have no idea how I'm still married. My, my husband stayed with me. She said, I cannot, I don't understand how even my children will even talk to me still. This was the matriarch of the church. She said, but during these days, God showed me my bitterness. And she said, I repented and I forgave what happened, the person who hurt me, and I've gone back and sought forgiveness from the other members of my family. And this is a 70-year-old. She said, God has set me free. I talked to that staff member several months later. He said, Mark, you would not even recognize her. He said, her whole countenance has changed. She is one of the sweetest women in this church. Listen, that is the power of God. Amen? 
I, I love when, when in the early 19, or mid-1970s, God did a work in one of Life Action's meetings in Indiana. It was a church that had split. We were in one of the splits, and neither of the pastors of those two churches were the original pastors. But this had affected this little town in such a dramatic way that there were Christians who worked in the same plants who had not spoken for three years. There were family members walking down the street who would cross the street to keep from having to speak to each other. Now, can you imagine the testimony in that town? And during those days, God began to work in that first church, and, and, and that second church heard about it. And again, these weren't the original pastors, and they said, hey, could you send us a team? So we sent a team to the other church, and God began to work in both churches. And the third Sunday, they, they met, these two churches met together in the sanctuary for the first time in these years. They actually took a picture from the platform looking out. It was a long auditorium with a giant balcony just crammed with both churches. They put a full-page ad in the local paper, and it said this, Will you please forgive us? And they listed the sins they had committed before the city before the town. God began to stir in that town. We got a letter from a man who said, a salesman, he said he was driving through the town. He said, I hit the city limits and the conviction of God fell on my life. He said, it was so overwhelming. I just started weeping. I couldn't keep going. He said, I pulled over to the side of the road and just wept. He said, I got issues right in my heart and life. He said, he had a great aunt that actually lived in this town. He drove over to her house, knocked on the door. She was shocked to see him. And, and he just said, what is going on here? And this, is, this was an unchurched woman. This is what she said. Haven't you heard God has come to Connersville? The power of God. But again, it changes lives. Listen, any movement that does not produce holiness and the life of believers is not a movement from the Spirit. Because the Spirit will always be conforming us into the image of Christ. So he's the Spirit of power. Two more. The Spirit of knowledge. Now this word is the same word that's used in the Old Testament and Jeremiah and other places, speaking of the knowledge of God. So when the Spirit comes, there will be a greater intimacy that happens with God. The Spirit will always work. His work will always be God-centered, not man-centered. The Spirit will always point to God. He won't elevate men for praise. He elevates Jesus Christ. And there will be a deeper intimacy with God, a deeper knowledge of Him. Now, I'm going to get on a soapbox here about an issue that I, I, think, I think is one of Satan's greatest distortions and lies, and it's the issue of the whole teaching of self-esteem. Now, let me, by the way, let me tell you, the only time in the years of my ministry that I've ever actually had people get so angry at me that I had people calling out to me was when I made this statement, there is no such thing as low self-esteem. Now, let me say, you may have had hard things said to you as a child, or you may have been belittled, and those are hurtful things that you have to process. But remember something, and this is just not semantics. This is key to truth from Scripture. God never says that our problem is we don't love ourselves enough. What does He say our problem is? We do love ourselves, and we have expectations for what our self deserves. And when those expectations aren't met, we get upset and we get hurt. 
I'll tell you, I'm not, I'm not living this and I'm not to this point, but Oswald Chambers said this. He said, anytime a Christian can get hurt, it is a testimony that they have an issue with the self-life. I mean, that's a stunning statement. But th- this whole, you know, I, I remember, and you probably heard part of this illustration, but, you know, this whole issue of, and by the way, the, the lie of self-esteem is just the lie that won't die. They keep debunking it and debunking it. I, I read just about three months ago an article from Atlantic Monthly, again, just saying, you know, it's, it's not, it doesn't work. It doesn't help. In fact, do you know that right now on college campuses, administrators have, have a title they use for a whole segment of the college population, and they call them teacups because they are so fragile and they cannot handle failure and they've never been through adversity and they've been protected and their whole life they have been told you're the best, you're the greatest, they've never lost at anything. That when they get into college and they can't function or they fail or they don't do well, they just come to pieces. And colleges are trying to figure out how to deal with these young people who are so incredibly fragile. Because this whole issue of self-esteem, what I was saying was, you know, you've heard this illustration probably, but the old hymn writer, would he devote, Isaac Watts, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Well, someone came along and said, you know, you don't want to call people worms. That's bad for their self-esteem. So let's change it. And they changed it in most hymnals to, would he devote that sacred head for a sinner such as I? Well, then someone came along and decided to change that. I, was, I remember I was in a church in New Hampshire, and we were singing that song from the hymnal, and this is what it said. Would he devote that sacred head for someone such as I? Do you see where that's headed? I mean, pretty soon it's going to say, would he devote that sacred head for somebody as credibly worthy of it as I am? Listen, my value doesn't come from thinking I am something and therefore God wants me. My value comes from understanding I'm a worm. I could give you a thousand reasons why God should have nothing to do with me. And yet this morning he was pursuing me in a love relationship. That's where my value comes from, the value God places on me. In fact, I tell you, we have taken a parable, the parable of the pearl of great price, and we have really flipped it on its head. Because what, you know, if you remember that, per- that parable, the whole issue is the pearl is God. And a man, when he's drawn, sees the value of this, the incredible, just more than anything on this earth, he sells everything he has to gain it. But what we are saying now is we're the pearl. And we're of such great price that God gives his most valuable thing to gain us. Do you see how distorted that is? Because when the Spirit moves, the focus will always be on God. It will be God-centered, not man-centered. Listen, you want a balanced life of proper self-view, understand the grace of God. That a wretch like me is loved by a holy God. That's where self-value comes from. And then finally... And I love this one, the fear of the Lord. In fact, look at the verse 3, speaking of the coming Messiah, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. When the Spirit moves, there will be a fear of God present. I think some of the silliness that goes on in the church today, by the grace of God, is going to be swept away. 
you know, we are so desperate for something. And, and, and I really believe some of this comes out of a, that hungry heart. To he who is hungry, even what is bitter tastes sweet. And so we're trying everything. I mean, laser light shows and smoke machines. And, and you know, I, I was sharing with some of the guys, but it's grieving. You know, I've been to churches with gorillas. Guy in gorilla suit came out. And, and just all, I mean, we are trying, trying everything because we don't have the real the work of the Spirit. And when the Spirit of the Lord comes, there is a fear of God that comes with it. And some things just are not appropriate. You know, Mary Peckham, in fact, she didn't share this. Her husband, Colin Peckham, shared this, that there was a movement going on in, in England, and it was, it was the big laughing thing, you know, where everybody's just laughing, and, and you know, people would mention hell, and everybody would laugh. And and uh, she and Colin went to, to see this because she is a product of revival. You know, there's an old saying that once you've seen the fire, you're never content with the smoke. And, and she wanted to see if this was of God. And, and they went and, and visit. And, and, and Colin just simply said this. He said, she was so grieved in her spirit that she would not even talk about it for days and weeks after. Because she had experienced the presence of God that had come on an area of a nation and to witness this, this circus that was going on, she was so grieved she couldn't even speak. By the way, she told me that in the, the Hebrides revival, she said the presence of God, she said it wasn't just in the church, she said it was everywhere. She says, you didn't talk about what went on in meetings because God was everywhere. She said, it's what people talked about during the day. She said, it's what you thought about as you drifted off to sleep. She said, it was the first thought when you woke up in the morning. She said, there was a man in her village that was notorious for his alcoholism, his drunkenness. And she said, he, several of his friends came to Christ. He became fearful he was going to come to Christ. She said, he packed some of his belongings and he fled to the mountains to get away. She said he returned about two days later, and guess what? <laughs> he had met with God. You cannot run from God. The fear of God. I, I remember preaching in New Mexico, and I love the way the Lord does things because I think he does things sometimes just in a way that reminds you that, as we've talked about in these days, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And I'd had one of those days, I don't know if you've ever had one of these, where you never stop moving, but you feel like you've accomplished nothing. And uh, we had a service that night, and I had about an hour before the service, I had been doing and going and, and just nothing, and I felt like I'd, I'd accomplished nothing. And I had about an hour to set aside before the service just to seek the Lord, and what happened was just interruption after interruption, and I was in a room off the sanctuary, and people kept walking in, and one of our staff walked in and needed help, and so he, I ended up counseling him or giving him direction for about 15 or 20 minutes. The, the short of it was by the, whole, by the time the whole thing was ended, there was about five minutes before the service started. And I, I start to get on my knees, and then that guilt just comes over you. God, I, how can I go into this this way, you know? And, and, um, and by the way, any, anything, any voice that whispers to you, you can't go to God, is not from God. And... Uh, Immediately, God brought to mind Psalm 121, I will lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. And I said, Lord, I just lift my eyes to you. You're my help. And, and I began to pray for it. And, and just immediately, I entered into a depth of prayer and uh, just a spirit of prayer. And, and it was like the Lord spoke in my heart and said, something unusual is going to happen tonight. And, and I knew something was happening because as the, 
the music was happening. We, were, we started singing Holy, 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 and, and the whole senior adult section began to go to their knees on a side. And uh, I just said, Lord, something's going on here. Well, over to my left was the youth section, and our youth speaker had come to me earlier in the week, and he said, Mark, this is the hardest group I've ever tried to teach. He said they have no interest in spiritual things. They, they mock. They, he said it's just a, they're just unbroken and rebellious. And, and, and I began to preach. I actually preached that night from Isaiah chapter 6. And in the midst of my message, just an amazing thing, and, and I don't even know how to describe it. I don't want to sound mystical, but just a, a presence of God settled in that room. And, and what happened was I was getting amens back as I was preaching, but I suddenly noticed I was getting groans. And, and I would make a point about the nature of God, and I, it, it sounded at times like someone was being punched in the stomach. And I would just hear, ugh, ugh. And I remember I looked over to the side, and these young people, there were about five or six rows of them. They were, many of them were just laying their heads on the pews in front of them. Some of them had their face in their hands. And, and I mean, God just settled. The conviction of God settled in that room. And, and I don't know if you can do this. I have this bizarre ability to be preaching and actually carry on a second line of thought in my mind. And, uh, and so I'm still preaching, and I'm, but I'm going, God, what do, you, what do I do here? What do I, what do, I do here? And I just stopped, and I gave probably the most politically incorrect invitation I have ever given. I just stopped the message. I said, you know what? I said, some of you in this room are hypocrites. And I said, many of you youth, I said, you're here not because you want to be here to meet with God. You're here because your parents are making you be here, and you're a hypocrite. And I said, you need to go to the prayer room right now and just confess your hypocrisy. That entire section, boom, to the prayer room. People getting up, moving. Listen, I want you to tell you something. 30 minutes after that service ended, people were still spread out all over the place. I had team members coming tell me, said, Mark, you should have heard it in the prayer room, just weeping, and it was the same prayer. Oh, God, forgive me for being a hypocrite. Oh, God, forgive me. I remember looking over to the side, and a father and a teenage son embracing, and the teenage son was just sobbing, and he said, oh, Dad, I don't want to live this way. I want to be right with God. I remember a lady just staring straight ahead in, in the couple of pews in front of me. The pastor sat down next to her and said, can I help you? And She just said, Pastor, I understand it now. She said, I've got to learn to pray. I've got to learn to pray. I had a man walk up to me. He said, Mark, God told me tonight that if I did not confess my adultery, I would die. I didn't say anything like that. <laughs> but just a, a mercy drop of the fear of God fell into that place. Listen, I wonder sometimes with the the frivolity. And, and listen, there is a place for, we laugh in our home, and I think God gave us laughter, but sometimes the lack of seriousness that we enter into God, that we pray about the glory of God in His church, how lighthearted we can be about certain things. And I'm not saying you never laugh in church. I'm not talking about that. But what I'm saying is that when the fear of God comes, there is a seriousness that comes with it. And what I think the greatest sign that God is there is that wicked men shut their mouths. They don't dare stand and defy and blaspheme. Their mouths are shut 
You say, well, Mark, how does this relate to me this morning? Well, again, it's not just a description of what happens when revival comes. It's a description of a Spirit-filled life. Is the Word central? Is there wisdom? Do you have a power in your life? Is God giving you direction? Is there a growing knowledge and intimacy with God? And are you walking in the fear of the Lord? Because those are the men and women God will use to bring revival, those who are serious about Him. Let me ask you if you would stand with me. you would bow your heads for prayer. You know, I I never want to do a message like this without giving time for response. And I I really don't know what God may have said to you tonight. We've covered a lot of ground, or this morning, and a lot of ground in a lot of areas. Maybe God's just stirred your heart to see His Spirit outpoured in your church, in your life, in your family. Maybe God has shown you that the Word has not been central, that a love for and a knowledge of God has not been central in your life. So this is what I'm just going to ask. Whatever God may have said, wherever the Spirit has spoken, wherever there is an absence in your heart of realization of the fear of God, I want you to just slip on out. People are already responding. I want you to come down here and pray and just do business with God. And listen, stay until he speaks to your heart. So if you need to respond, you folks are coming, I want you to come on down. As these folks are still coming, let me just say something. If if I had been here all week, I'm under conviction right now speaking, and uh, God had not spoken to my heart, I would be worried. I'd want to know why. God has been here. I guess the question is, do you have a sensitive hearing heart? I mentioned Helen Rosevere and how the wind blew in in that revival. She shares that as revival came to that church, for over two weeks it bypassed her because of issues in her heart and, and pride. And she was proud of her medical profession, and she looked down on the people she ministered to, and there was arrogance there, and she said, God bypassed me. And finally, in desperation, as others met with God, she just said, oh, God, meet with me, have mercy, and she finally met with God. Listen, don't let that be your story. You may just need to come on down and say, God, don't pass me by. Again, any others... We're just going to let it go here. If you need to come, you come. as these folks continue to pray let's as we've done we're going to take a little break here if you need to slip on out please do so silently be sensitive to those who are still here praying and if you need to pray, take a break if you want to stay here and here and pray that's that's fine and 
We're going to take a little break here before we hear from Ken. And you just do what you need to do.